this is work uh, that actually some, in, in a sense has been going on for a, a, quite a long time, although um, coming together at the moment and working on a book with Finn Branton on the general subject of obfuscation. Now just to get you into the mood, um, some of you might be familiar with the whole initiative of PETS, Privacy Enhancing Technologies, and I like, this is the title of a short article that Alicia McDonald has written, When Self-Help Helps, User Adoption of Privacy Technology. So there's this idea that we're living in a kind of a hostile system of uh, data gathering, um, unjust and uncomfortable data collection in ways that we, we, we want to resist, but we, we don't have the capacity to intervene in the systems themselves. We feel um, we, we're individuals in larger systems and we, we don't understand them and they're doing things that we don't like. And so the PETS community and the PETS initiative is this idea of creating privacy-enhancing technologies, privacy-enhancing tools, um, and it's considered as a mode of self-help. That in itself is a slightly problematic concept, and I'm happy for us to discuss it if we have time, but it's, it's somewhat within that cloud of thoughts that the work of obfuscation um, sits. And so this is this idea of data tyranny, the fact that uh, the, I use the word tyranny in a very um, specific way influenced by political thinkers like Philip Pettit and Michael Walzer, the idea being that you are tyrannized to the extent that um, harm can come to you or you can be controlled at the arbitrary decision of other people. And so uh, knowing that what we are beginning to learn about how data can tyrannize people, I, I consider the, the thing against which obfuscation is pushing to be what I'm calling data tyranny. And I also just wanted to mention contextual integrity because the effort of obfuscation in many, um, in many of the applications has to do with privacy, uh, reasserting privacy against some of this uh, tyranny of data. But when I use the word privacy, I just simply want, this is a single slide on contextual integrity, I want to remind us all that I'm not thinking about privacy as is often considered secrecy, so that any revelation of information is considered a reduction or violation of privacy. I do not believe that. Secondly, I do not, um, I do not subscribe to the view that a right to privacy is a right to control information about oneself. Rather, I think of privacy as appropriate flow of information, and then the theory models this idea of appropriate flow as um, consistency with contextual informational norms. So there are different models of pets, there are different types of pets, and, and one that's quite common is the, uh, involves the use of cryptography. I want to just use this as a way to lead into what obfuscation is and distinguish it from cryptography. So, you know, here's Waldo and he wants to hide himself. Um, and this was a program, this was a little system actually we developed. Um, two people got together in our privacy research 
group, Ian Spiro and um, Matt Tierney, and they created this cryptogram. It's an extension. It can um, hide your picture. This is, in fact, exactly what it is. This is that photograph hidden. So if you want to um, obscure your photographs, say, on, in your Facebook album, you can do it. But of course, the difference between this and what Facebook already does is that this is um, obscured even on the server, and so Facebook would not have access to the image, but rather the scrambled image. So what is the difference between resistance with crypto and resistance with data obfuscation? And let me just um, give you the definition that we've been using, because obfuscation is used in a variety of ways and maybe might even apply to the, uh, the previous case. Obfuscation, the production, inclusion, addition, or communication of misleading, ambiguous, or false data in an effort to evade, distract, confuse, confuse data gatherers, or diminish the reliability and value of data aggregations. In other words, one way of hiding is, is through secrecy. It's by containing, removing the information. And the way that we envision obfuscation acting is rather to hide in the crowd. It's to throw a lot of information so that you obfuscate the information that is there. So here's um, our guy Waldo, and this is what it is to obfuscate. And here was another case that I happened to find in the New York Times in 2013 that I think we can enjoy and we can probably all identify with. Here's another type of obfuscation. And I suspect that um, all of us have our personal stories of times that we may have obfuscated. So the, 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 the idea of behind that definition is you just you add data to confuse. You add stuff to confuse. And it's it's what I started thinking about actually t t this morning when I was going through my slides is, I wonder why Aunt Lily decides to obfuscate. Why does she do that? Why doesn't she just say, I refuse to give you the recipe? You know, what, it, what function does it serve to withhold the information through obfuscation? Anyway, this is something to keep in mind when we're thinking about the different ways that obfuscation operates. Now, I first started thinking about obfuscation um, when, I, when I worked with, initially, Daniel Howe, who was a PhD student in the computer science department at NYU, and then later on, Vincent Tubiana, who actually now works for the um, French Data Authority, but was a postdoc with me at NYU as well. And he had developed um, a product called Squiggle SR, and we merged our products, and uh, it became Track Me Not. But this was something um, that I got excited about because um, I think it might have been in 2005, I, I, I don't forget exactly when it was, when the Department of Justice had um, subpoenaed search query data, um, and then the, New York, the year later, the New York Times had taken the, the database that the AOR, AOL that AOL had released, um, supposedly anonymized, and then showed 
that in rather short order they were able to re-identify various of the so-called anonymized users. But it, it wasn't so much those specific instances or those specific reasons that got me uh, concerned, but it's just to think, hey, wait a sec, you mean every, every search I'm making is being um, stored and held and I'm identified with all the searches that I've made? You know, that was quite shocking to me at the time. Now I've, I think we all, maybe we all take it for granted, but it was shocking. And I was part of a large NSF project at the time, and I was asking my um, computer science friends, you know, is there anything we can do about it? Is there anything we can do about it? And they all said, nothing you can do about it, because Google's not going to change, the government's not going to do anything about it. And I kept thinking, there's got to be something we can do about it. So we developed TrackMeNot, and all that, it's, you know, lightweight system, it's uh, it works with Chrome, it's Firefox, I don't know, we've had over a million downloads. We know, according to Mozilla, that there are 40,000 um, worldwide who are using the system uh, consistently. And it sends fake queries to web uh, search engines. And I don't know how much you can see here, but it's become quite sophisticated. Um, let's see. Actually, so no, maybe I'm going to actually try and do this live. Um, okay, there it is. There's the website that you can download it. But we can see that here are the options. And what we've added, um, for this is something that was recently added, is this. And what you can do here is you can actually um, have TrackMeNot function in any search bar. So if you want to put the Amazon URL in there, then you can get TrackMeNot to send fair queries um, in any kind of search bar. And there are various ways. Uh, we, have, we actually have a Chinese translation of it, so it functions with Baidu. Um, you can adjust the number of queries. Um, if... I want to actually see what queries are going out. I can, um, now why am I not seeing it? Oh, there we go. That, that shows you the searches that uh, TrackMeDot is doing. And there are various other things that you can do based on a lot of user feedback. Some people didn't want um, certain type of pornography. I guess that's the French version of <laughs> pornography. Um, there were just certain terms, so you can have your blacklist terms and, and you can set up an RSS feed so that the terms are actually extracted. You can choose your publication. So we would get these um, letters from users saying, child body parts or something like that were in my search, and I'm so angry with TrackMeNot, and I'm thinking, hey, guy, what RSS feed are you using? You know, there's, there's a way that you can personalize it. Anyway, it continues to be a huge amount of work, and uh, we continue to... What did I do? So uh, we, ha we have TrackMeNot functioning. As you can tell, I'm quite proud of it. And I would go around and present on TrackMeNot, get 
two kinds of critical feedback. One is track me not doesn't work. This is from uh, computer scientists, often from people who are experts in security. How can it work? I'm sure that the search engines know exactly which are the fake searches. And then I had, uh, we, we would get a whole lot of other kinds of critiques, which are that track me not isn't ethical. Um, and I'm going to actually deal with, the, for the rest of the talk, is, is trying to address these questions. But the questions were very um, bracing. And when we tried to respond to the question, it was an opportunity for us to step back and understand what is this technique, what is the strategy, this tactic that we're calling obfuscation. Because it seemed when we started looking around, and when I say we, it's Daniel Howe, Vincent Tubiana, and then Finn Branton um, came on board as part of this project. We started thinking, we started noticing that obfuscation is, there's something very natural about obfuscation. This notion of hiding in plain sight, and this was um, a quote we found, you know, when, when, uh, where does a wise man hide a leaf in the forest, but what does he do if there's no forest? Uh, he grows a forest to hide it in. Um, and we, we uh, actually investigated certain um, historical and ongoing uses of obfuscation just to get uh, a general sense of uh, various forms of obfuscation. And um, I'm not going to go through everything in this list. Some of them um, I'm sure you're familiar with, this idea of swapping loyalty cards so that the supermarket or whoever it is can't keep track of your purchases, but you can still get the advantage of having the loyalty card. Uh, with radar chaff, this was something that was used by um, the Allies in the Second World, World War, where a, a plane would fly uh, wanting to drop bombs and was aware that there was radar. And so what they would do is as they're approaching the targeted area where they, they knew there were uh, radar, they would release a whole uh, uh, bunch of um, black paper backed with aluminum foil um, at, at just the right size so that the radar would, instead of just following one plane, would suddenly see a whole lot of planes fill the screen, the bomb would be dropped and the plane would fly off. So it, it was obfuscation just for the amount of time that was needed. The Craigslist robber happened in Monroe, Washington. Some of you may know the story. Uh, 2008, 11 a.m., Tuesday the 30th of September, uh, a bank was robbed in Monroe, Washington. And the description was of an exterminator with a blue shirt, goggles, and a dust mask. Anyway, the police arrive on the scene, and what they find are 13 men wearing exterminator outfits, blue shirts, goggles, and so on. And what, what this robber has done, actually this kind of follow, interesting follow-up to the story, but many years later he got caught. And, and so we, we know a little bit more about the story, but he had placed an ad in Craigslist saying, wanted an exterminator and please come dressed like this. And the people showed up when they were supposed to. So, and he successfully at least got away this time. The thing, the Uber, I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with what, this is a reason that I try not to take Uber, is that um, Uber was getting, gaining in popularity, and so what they would do, and this is proven, is 
they had competition, GET and LIFT. GET has is proven the, the LIFT one they've been accused of, but I don't know what the outcome of it, is that Uber employ, employees call up GET drivers and say, come pick me up at such and such. And then the drivers go out after that, and then that call gets cancelled. And so they did a lot of that type of calling and obfuscating the real calls to the GET drivers. And then after doing this for a few days, someone from Uber would call up the GET driver and say, how would you like to work for Uber? Okay, so that's a, that's a way. The orb spider is really interesting also, just to show how obfuscation is used in nature, because what the orb spider does is it has to have its spider web out in the open, but there are lots of predators. Um, and so what it does is it creates diversions on its web, creates like little bits of uh, grass and dirt and and weaves those around maybe the prey to exactly the size of the spider itself so that the wasp predator would um, attack the diversion and give the orb spider time to run away, scuttle away. All right, so the question that, the accusation that track me not doesn't work, of course, we we have argued back and we have a paper on why we think track me not does work and it may have weaknesses and what the weaknesses still are and we're still doing tests and there have been some um, technical studies of track me not but um, we take a step back and ask you know what does what does it mean what makes obfuscation work and you know is it ethical should it be banned and I want to just spend a little bit of time on the question of um, does it work what uh, what does it mean, um, and what does it even mean to to ask of an obfuscation effort? Does it work? What's different about obfuscation is that it's it's it it works for something rather limited. There's no externalizable criterion that we or universally externalizable criterion that we could say this is a measure generally of whether obfuscation work because when we looked at this and in the in the book and in the articles there we have a lot more cases that um, we've we've read about we've written about we've studied is that what it is for an obfuscation effort to work is highly diverse so in the case of the radar chaff, it's just to buy time. We just need enough time for the bomb to drop and fly away. This isn't something that's going to work forever or even for half an... You know, it's, it's very much focused on the purpose at hand. Um, it, your purpose might just be plausible deniability. So for Track Me Not, if someone comes up to you and says... I see that you search for such and such, you, you could say, oh no, actually, that was track me not, it was automatically generated. So sometimes it's just to uh, buy you plausible deniability. Uh, sometimes it might be to, as you see, foil profiling. Again, with track me not, it was, it was a very interesting experience because uh, one of the harshest critics was 
uh, were the folks at Electronic Frontier Foundation who, as you know, have been supporting the TOR project. And, and you know, our, by the way, our argument is not that this is better than TOR, TOR is better than this. TOR, is, we fully support what TOR is doing. Um, <clears throat> but um, we understood then from some of these critiques that Track Me Not, and, and we toyed with the idea of Track Me Not, say, removing cookies or stopping third-party cookies. We decided that, in fact, what Track Me Not can, cannot do is hide your identity. What it can do is obfuscate the profile. And so if your concern about searching is that you, want to, you don't want some third party to be able to identify your interests based on your queries, then we want to make sure that th that's the purpose of Track Me Not. It's not to hide identity. Elude surveillance, express uh, protest, or even subvert a system. So if we look, if we lay out these different purposes, there, here are some of the cases that um, we examined. Say with loyalty card swapping, it's, the aim is to foil profiling. Um, cash cloak was a, a very interesting one we found. Um, that was published in an in a academic article. It was to hide your location and um, it was for lo location-based services. If you had cash uh, cloak loaded onto your mobile phone, what it would do is, um, let's say you have Yelp, and as we know, mobile apps are really terrible about the data that they can extract from our, our smartphones, our mobile devices. So what cash cloak does is it sends... Um, lots of different queries to Yelp with, from lots of different locations, but the phone itself knows where you are. And so when all this junk comes back, it extracts the information that you actually are looking for. So once again, it's not hiding where you are, but rather it's obfuscating by, by giving the service more information so that the service can't distinguish. And uh, so, what, and what we then um, inferred about obfuscation, um, we we took this term from James C. Scott, who had been um, studying peasant communities in Malaysia, where and they're they're um, they they're under. I'd say that they're tyrannized. They're, the 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 question that Scott was interested is. Um, are they simply accepting what's happening to them and how can a, uh, a, a subgroup of society that's so domineered or so tyrannized by another group, how do they resist if, if they um, protest openly, they, they could get severely hurt. On the other hand, they certainly don't have the resources to go out and and create a rebellion. And so we think in some sense of obfuscation as 
a weapon of the week, a weak weapon of the week, because it's very targeted to certain function. Um, it's vulnerable. The, the obfuscatory measures are vulnerable to attack by those who are much stronger. The technology behind obfuscation is extremely circumstantial. You use what you have. It is very specific to the problem that you're trying to solve. It's this kind of just enough, just in time. And I wanted to, uh, again, um, thinking recently about, I love this, this particular slide, but it's a little gaudy and it was my effort to try and play with certain things that I had recently learned about PowerPoint. So I hope, you, I, hope it, it, I hope it doesn't put you off too much. But here's what I'm trying to say here. Let's say you're the individual. Here's the search engine. And you don't like the fact. You feel that it's wrong. And personally, consistent with contextual integrity, I have argued that it's inappropriate for the search engine, if, you, if we think about web search as intellectual pursuit, that search engines should not be tracking us, they should not be profiling us on the, we, on the basis of the, this particular activity any more than they should be telling us when we're in a library, deciding what books to read, what media to, um, to watch, and so forth. So, we ha and we have to make that argument first, that that's inappropriate. So we say to the search engines, we don't want you to track us. They're this humongous thing. You know, this is the search. It's impermeable to us. If we go to this, who do we go to? We say, I don't want you to track me. And they say, we're going to track you because <coughs> you're profitable. These searches are very indicative of your interests. We can give you the right ads, all of those things. And, you know, we, we think that you're going to like our service. Don't you like that one? We're going to improve the experience for you. Or we can go to the government and we can say, we don't like this. Please regulate. And the government, maybe they agree with you, but it takes 20 years for that to happen. Or they have a lot of lobbyists who explain why there's absolutely nothing wrong and uh, we're going to knock off the last four digits of the IP address after 18 months of having the identifiable searches. Uh, so we can't do any, the individual can't do anything there. So we look at this and we say, there's one door, one window that we have into the search engine. There's one way we know the search engine is going to answer us when we knock at its door. And what is that? The query itself. So we say that's our vector. Like that's the vector of influence. And so that's why we're going to use that as the vector of influence because we're not able to influence those other more direct ways of imposing our will. And so, of, <coughs> sorry, obfuscation is, is that kind of reaction to a problem. Um, ad nauseum is a new uh, product that we created uh, Daniel Howe again and um, Mushan Zeraviv is helping us with um, some of the, the interface. I'm too scared to click on it. <laughs> There's ad nauseum. It's only going to be, as you see, it's alpha. We're releasing it in November. And um, what ad nauseum does is it clicks on all ads. 
<laughs> and it can show you various things. This, this was a really interesting part of ad nauseum, is that it doesn't actually throw away the ads, but it actually um, shows you the ads that you have been presented. And I actually think that just as a self-reflection or something, you can look at these ads all together and say, hmm, like, this is what the Internet thinks of me. This is, this is how I'm being targeted. As you can see, this is, uh, a lot of them are mushans because they're in Hebrew. Um, you can see, you know, view logs. And, and so um, it gives you, it shows you where the ads are coming from. And, and if you, I don't know how to read this, but if you know how to read it, it's giving you a lot of information about um, where the ads are coming from. <coughs> and another thing that's clear to us about this is that for obfuscation to be, um, to I mean, this is what Finn and I are thinking. Yeah, we want to start a revolution with this. It's a very small revolution. But we, would, we, would, we see great promise in, in the application of obfuscation to certain kinds of areas where, where, where we see data tyranny. However, there, there's a lot of science and engineering that needs to go in it. So, for example, in the case of TrackMeNot, We've managed to solve many of the side channel attacks that will prevent the search engines from identifying the searches as coming from TrackMeNot. However, the big question that we've not been able to answer is whether, the, whether if you put a machine learning program onto this mass of searches, the, the search engine could then detect that A, whether a person is using TrackMeNot or not, um, and whether, the, whether they're able then to throw out the fake searches in order still to build an accurate profile. And, there's, and so we know there's mathematics, there's statistics, science and engineering, and um, in order to um, maybe push this field a little bit forward, we started, um, we've, we've created a framework for understanding various different things about, about um, different forms of obfuscation. And I'm not going to go through this whole slide in the interest of time, but it's clear that, um, for example, who's your adversary in all of this? Is the adversary your NS the NSA? And this was written pre-Snowden, by the way. Uh, was this someone who has a vast amount of resources and who's very focused on trying to um, de-alphascate you in particular, or is it a nosy neighbor, they get put off by a little bit of obfuscation and they turn around and you know, go to something else more interesting. Second of all, your design may be affected by whether you want to be able to obfuscate in stealth so that people don't know you're obfuscating, or do you, do you, are you able so one of the um, cases we looked at was babble tapes, which is a kind of sound obfuscation. So instead of like in the mafia movies, how they turn on the faucets and they talk so that the bugs can't capture. But babble tapes is actually the use of language so that it, it interrupts what can be said. So in those cases, we know that 
obfuscation is being used, but it still is going to succeed in, in what it aims to do. Sometimes um, the beneficiary of obfuscation is only the source, the individual source of the obfuscation. But if what you're doing is messing the system, messing the database, you might actually um, be providing this obfuscation for everybody in it, and uh, they may or may not want it. You know, so it has its own problem. Um, and in the case of Track Me Not, for example, if you if we don't know who's obfuscating and who isn't, then Track Me Not could provide some cover for people, even those who are not using obfuscation. So it gets, we, uh, I think it's a uh, kind of appropriate moment to ask some of the, the questions about the ethics of obfuscation. Um, and some of, the, some of the critiques that we've gotten, both of Track Me Not or of just discussing um, obfuscation as a mechanism for, for resisting data tyranny, surveillance, and so forth. And I'm going to just focus on a few of them. I'm, there may be others as well. I know that when I presented very early on about ad nauseum, um, and there was someone from Yahoo in the audience, they, were, they equated um, ad nauseum to terrorism and you know that they, they had a point you know that so, so this is not necessarily the whole list but we have to see that we can actually defend against these things so um, obviously obfuscation is deceptive because you, you you're wanting to mislead um, some people would argue that especially like say loyalty card swapping you might be free riding because you're still getting the good prices, but you're not paying with your data. Or you could be free riding on peers sometimes because the peers are supporting the system. Like with Adblocker, they're getting the benefits. Um, sorry, you're getting the benefits of them being open to revealing information about themselves. Uh, many people were concerned about the wastage, the waste of bandwidth in the case of um, TrackMeNot or the waste of server space, it pollutes the data, which is in a way what you want to do, um, and system damage. So those were some of the issues. Um, and I, I, I want to try and deal with everything at the same time um, in the interest of time, because I think I'm, I'm, I'm running out. So one thing was absolutely clear if we did an ethical analysis on various cases and using TrackMeNot as a case in point because we know a lot about that, we know how it works, we know the kinds of decisions that we took all along the way in, in order to, um, to make sure that it's, it's still, we still felt it was legitimate, is that the ends have to be legitimate. These have to be just ends. Obfuscation in itself, we couldn't say, oh, the Craig's robber, that was cute, that's okay. If your aim is to rob a bank, then obfuscation's not going to get you off the hook. In the case of Uber, I don't think that that is an ethical use of obfuscation. Um, 
in the case of the orb, well, I, I don't know if animals can be ethical, but perhaps escaping a rival, uh, sorry, escaping a predator. Now, there's some really interesting cases of obfuscation that are used by computer programmers and actually hardware engineers as well. Computer programmers may, um, in order to prevent people from um, um, subverting code, will want to make it difficult for humans to read the code and understand how the, how the um, system works or prevent them from reverse engineering. And so they would, as a practice, put a lot of lines of code that aren't actually functioning within the system but would be confusing a human reader. So that's a use of obfuscation. And the hardware obfuscation, I learned from a colleague of mine at NYU, um, the reason they use hardware obfuscation is that they'll create false... Um, I don't know the right terminology, circuits <laughs> on, on a board, so in order actually to protect um, intellectual property. So a person who is looking at the, the, the silicon chip won't know exactly the relationship of what's soldered on there and how this functions. And so it's used to protect intellectual property. <laughs> so these are used, and, and we can argue about the ends themselves. Are these just ends? But we also may want to ask about means, because um, as I'm sure we all know, the ends don't justify the means. We ha what you learn in Ethics 101 when you're doing utilitarian argumentation is yes, uh, you might have to take some harm for benefit, with, but what you really want is the optimal, uh, the optimal means. You want to make sure that if there is some harm that comes with obfuscation, then there wasn't some other way of doing it that didn't have that harm that came along with it. And so we've spent, uh, say, we here, Finn and I, have talked, and, and some of you, if you've read some of the, pa the earlier papers, um, have seen us go through some of this to say, well, what are the options that we have with data tyranny? Can we actually opt out? Can you say, I'm not going to use a credit card, I'm not going to use a search engine, I'm not going to use a mobile device? Can we realistically use the opt out option um, to get outside of this data net that we're part of. The law can be effective, but as we noted, slow moving, it's, it's often um, there are a lot of vested interests that hold a stake and are much more powerful in shaping the law. Um, corporate best practices a little bit like the fox um, guarding the hen house. Um, although there, there is some promise in that. And then technology, technology does offer us some possibilities and obfuscation is one of those, one of those possibilities. Um, and I mean, these are just a few little slides to show how corporate best practice doesn't do the tricks. Many of you are probably familiar with how the do not track effort collapsed. Um, this is what American Express and, and most other companies, financial companies, tell us about. They tell us this is how we're using your data. It's not like, are you happy with this and might 
we do things a little bit differently. You know, these are the things we have to ask permission. Uh, can you limit the sharing? No, 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 no. And here are some of the beautiful privacy policies that we find. So coming back to the ethics, I think um, some of these alternatives are not realistic. The, this, this actually is, a, this needs, it, it requires a, a much more in-depth discussion than I'm going to have time for, but I wanted to show you where this consideration of ethics and politics takes us to, because people would say things like, you're wasting bandwidth, let's say, with Track Me Not. You're wasting bandwidth because you're doing false searches. And I, I would want to engage them and say, who's to say what is waste or not? I think if you watch Real Housewives of New Jersey, <laughs> you are wasting bandwidth. <laughs> but if I'm trying to protect my privacy by sending a few more searches, why are you telling me I'm wasting bandwidth? So, I mean, okay, maybe I have some agreement here, but this is a big discussion about w what constitutes use of these resources and not, and who's, who's standards do we go by is waste just because some party doesn't like it or do we have some common standard you know if people in LA which is essentially a desert want to water their lawns and people in Washington state or you know northern California where the water's coming from say you can't that's a waste of water who's to say these are public discussions they're political decisions and similarly with free riding, uh, the, the rebuttal for the free riding is, you know, who's free riding on whom in these cases of the, um, the collection of data, the um, tracking people online and so forth. And uh, again, with the pollution, we, we want to ask questions of what's being polluted. When we talk, when we use that word pollute, it has a, carries a lot of weight. It's saying to us, there's something pristine, there's something we value, and what you're doing is putting filth into that thing. You're polluting it. But it's making all sorts of assumptions that whatever that is deserves to be protected. And so that too, when you start pulling at it, you realize that too is a political concept and needs to be unpacked. Finally, and this is something that concerns me greatly, is one of the uses of big data. This is going to be um, my last argumentative point. What it does is it shifts risk around, if it works, which is to say that let's say I'm an advertiser and I want to spend my advertising money wisely. I want, to, I want to increase the chances that my advertising money is being spent well. Then I might, it might be very convenient for me to collect a whole lot of data and if I believe in the whole targeted advertising business, I'm now going to spend my money wisely by targeting people with that. So the whole back-end collection of data is for the purpose of me reducing my risk of spending badly on advertising. However, 
the whole back-end collection of data places people at risk. And there's, there's hardly a time that goes by, a period of time, when we don't, even, even just to be very superficial about it, say Home Depot, 65 million records get stolen. So even in that case of the, the very obvious informational harms, the pure aggregation of, of information about people increases our risk. So it's not that it simply diminishes risk. What is going on with many of these programs is it's shifting risk around. And so when we ask about whether these um, databases deserve to be pristine, we want to ask um, if there are risks and benefits, whose risks, whose benefits. Now one philosophical point to make is that there are databases that are being collected for the public good and even if that does expose individuals to greater risk for the public good, maybe I mean I think this is a, a discussion that we all have to have um, in regards to the, the, um, the excitement of a big data and, and that may be an argument that would, you know, if I could be convinced that this data that's being collected about us is for some common good that we all subscribe to, not some parochial benefit, um, I would be much more persuaded. Um, so I'm going to just jump over this and end with this particular slide. So if I've convinced you that obfuscation is a promising approach, modulo only those that can be justified morally and in political terms, what can we do to take advantage of this method that is very amenable for the weak? So it's, it's a weapon of the weak that we have access to and maybe not necessarily direct access, but without having access to the inner machinations of systems as the companies do or as the government does, how do we have that entry point? So one is to really understand the threat models and it requires study, there's certain scientific engineering statistical work, social science, politics, all this needs to be studied. And another one is to, what I, this terminology like, enable these execution vectors. So the, the thing that made Track Me Not possible was the fact that we have open protocols, that we have systems that like Firefox that give us access to them so that people who aren't on the inner circle can actually create systems and we have these hackable standards. But the one thing we do need to keep an eye on is that we limit the enforceable terms of service. When we first again released TrackMeNot, there was a lot of debate, does this violate terms of service? And actually, strictly speaking, it does. And one way that the adversary can protect themselves is by having a term of service that just says obfuscation is against the terms of engagement with us and we need to make sure that that doesn't happen. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, 
Near as I can tell, the, the main reason to moderate is that it gives you the chance to ask the first question. Uh, and, and because we've only got about half an hour, I had to limit myself. Um, but I, I want to start by actually asking the, the term that you ended with, uh, which is this notion of the weapon of the we. Um, and on the one hand, I think it's a, a very appropriate way to think about these things. When we think about these large impenetrable systems. We can't see how they work on the inside. We're very limited in our ability to interact with them. But then there's a flip side of this where you're using a term that, as you explained to us, was um, originally uh, applied to Malaysian peasants. And we are, in the grand scheme of political power, reasonably powerful entities. Mm -hmm. There's a number of ways we could imagine approaching these systems. We could imagine trying to pass a law to make tracking not work. Mm -hmm. We could imagine trying to reshape corporate norms so that this behavior isn't socially acceptable. We could imagine a market-based solution where we try to build an untrackable search engine and, and demonstrate that there's an advantage to it. It seems an interesting moment to, to, to reach for a weapon of the weak, and it also seems in some ways like a, a, a weird almost form of surrender. Mm -hmm. We're really only 20 years into the commercial web. How did we end up at a point where it's reasonable for very powerful, fully enfranchised people to sort of look at this and essentially say, we need to be fighting back at this the way that we would if we were Malaysian peasants? Yeah. Um. The obviously we're nowhere near where the Malaysian peasants are in, in any kind of absolute term in, in absolute terms. The the way that obfuscation and so we're using that in conceptually to show certain ways in which obfuscation is a different kind of tactic from just the ones that you've explained, that we, we try to change the law or we try to persuade the industry, etc. But um, there's so many, there's, there's so much rhetoric in the field of privacy that makes me think that unless some, unless there's, I mean maybe the Snowden uh, fiasco, whatever you want to call it, was a wake-up call and maybe it will jar people out. But the, there's such a common sense that um, individuals must not mind this because, look, we're just continuing to use these services. When, in fact, there's a lot that we accept even though we mind it very much. And so what obfuscation allows you to do is an intervention that's not very costly and doesn't require the kind of work that none of us is in a position to do, which is to gather together to make it a, a big political issue and to get results out of it. So we, we were talking before we came here about sort of the question of, of what are sort of possible end games from this, right? So the school right. comes out in November. One possible end game is it sparks discussion because it's a fascinating tool. We have a better debate about what's our relationship with search engines and such. There's another possible future in that you make a very compelling case, 
if 10% of the market adopts this, 20%, do, does the system crash at some point? It is, is your goal to open the debate? Is your goal to crash the system? Is your goal more complicated than sort of those, those binary poles? Well, I'm <clears throat> actually just one I'll address, because ad nauseum is actually a little bit more edgy than track me not. And <clears throat> I can just see it in the way people respond to it on the couple of occasions that I've discussed it. The thing with the end game with track me not is if a lot of people start using it, maybe it will slow down Google's system, Google's servers. And I'm talking about a lot of people. Then here's my fantasy end game. Google says... Oh my God, look, there are a million people who are consistently using TrackMeNot. They're telling us something here. We're going to change our policy. The end of TrackMeNot, deleted from your computer, great. That's the outcome that we want. Like we want to enter that zone where we have that, that, that then the role of these obfuscatory tools is an expressive role. I think that the, I, I'm happy to take questions, but there's, there's some other kind of interesting stuff that comes up with ad nauseum. Well, let, let's, let's open to some questions. Let's go to Mary first, and then we'll get to Saul, and then we'll go to you all. Uh, thank you for your talk. I just want to make sure I understand how ad nauseum um, is intended to work. Is it basically clicking the, clicking the buttons and kind of clearing away the ads that otherwise would pop up in front of you so they're not in your... You know, not in your line of sight, but they're still signaling to whatever sent you that ad that you're responding? No, actually, I was rushing through that one. It was, um, we, it's, it's, you have to have it at the same, you have to use it um, paired with Adblock Plus. So it, protect, it prevents the message, it, um, you don't get to see the ad. The reason we chose this particular mechanism was uh, particularly for the obfuscatory value because some of what we learned about the way targeted advertising works is that it's charged per click. And the click that you make on an ad is extremely indicative of your interest and feeds into your profile. And so we thought the only way we do not track's gone up in flames um, this is the way that we have. We can click. And so, if if yeah. I were a former member of the online advertising industry, which as it happens I am, <laughs> I, I might describe it as click fraud on an utterly massive scale as a form of protest. I don't know if that's fair, and nor, nor fair. do I actually believe that. <laughs> but I'm saying if I were representing it from that point of view, that would be helpful. You might try. Why, why is that not fair? You might try. Well, what do you mean by click fraud? I want to ask you what you mean, because it's true that... Okay, you tell me. So, so click fraud is, is usually meant to be um, a system in which someone tries to make money mm -hmm. by putting ads on a web page they have control over and then clicking those ads to collect the money. Yeah. And... It's a major problem for online advertising systems because to those systems, it's not a legitimate click. It was not an advertiser trying to find out about a product. And it, in theory, costs money because you're paying that money out. 
in your system, it's not fraud in the sense that I'm not collecting the money. Maybe it's fraud in that if I'm running the ads on, on the site, I, I am actually collecting the money. Right. Um, so, but it is definitely potentially taking money from the advertiser, giving it to another entity, not in the way that they expected the transaction to take place. I would argue that it's actually violating the norm of the contract that the advertiser expects to be having with the place hosting the ad, mm -hmm. which is I will give you the space and I will pay you only when a customer is going to click on it, which you're then violating. So it, 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 my action as the visitor to the site or to the reader of the content is making you violate your agreement with some third party. Our, our, the, the way we think about this is therefore the only thing it's expected of you, even though this is free content, it's expected of you to only click on ads that you're interested in. And if you click on ads that you're not interested in, you're committing fraud. I would argue that that is the current social norm. What do you think? That, that it's wrong to click on an ad that you're not interested in? I, I, I reached to the... <laughs> That's intentional because if it if it goes far enough, it causes the uh, funder of the advertising to reconsider with the host, and so there's a misrepresentation that is going let, to, have let, to be let, Let's concretize it. I I run a pretty big popular website, Global Voices. Mm -hmm. We don't run ads. We fund through other means. But, you know, who knows? Life is hard. Tomorrow, I, I get into an ad network. I put ads all over the page. You're a regular Global Voices reader. You show up every day. You click on every single ad. My ad network cuts me off. It, it's a fairly straightforward consequence. They're going to basically say, someone keeps coming to your site and clicking all the ads. They're not a, a very good ad target for me. Advertisers don't want to work with you anymore. They cut off my financing stream my poor little fragile NGO has now lost the ability to keep providing high-quality content. Uh, you've done me harm, Helen. You shouldn't have gotten into bed with those ads. <laughs> <laughs> so, I was going to ask a completely different question. Go for it. This is for people who are on focus on this. I mean, I've heard people who run large ad you know, networks talk about the fact that, and I mean, this is almost almost literally a quote, if somebody clicks on one of our ads, they're visually impaired. I mean, the, the click is meaningless, um, you know, in terms of actually defining interest. And when they do their big, you know, data mining crunching, all they care about is whether you've been shown the ad and whether they can actually link it up to, you know, post ad being shown purchase right. So why are you, I mean, focusing on the click? when that doesn't actually seem to mean anything anymore um, to the ad system? Um, I think that, I mean, from what we know, there are different business models. Some are pay-per-presentation um, of the ad, and some are pay-per-click. Well, these are people who are pay-per-click, but just will tell you off the record it doesn't mean anything. They can't actually correlate an ad click to a purchase, but they can correlate an ad, ad view to a purchase. I mean, again, I, it's a very, it's, 
it's a great no, it's a long conversation to be had because the there are some industries where you can you can even track an ad to purchase and in many cases you simply can't directly there aren't really good tools for tracking an ad to purchase and so I mean the ad industry is always struggling with these kinds of metrics but this tool ad nauseum is is um, honing in on those parts of the industry where the click matters and it's not addressing the other cases. So let's go to Yuwang and then I saw Tarleton, I see a bunch of other people, let's go to Yuwang yeah. first. My first big question is how are you going to promote this? How are you per persuading people to use this? I want to ask a question, how many people in this room use Tor every day? <laughs> <laughs> That's the question. How many people use DuckDuckGo? I'm going to start. <laughs> right. Well, that, uh, that's actually an interesting question in comparison, right? I mean, that, yeah. that's something that, that's quite common at this point. Is that a two-part question to you, or that, that was the main question? That's the first question. Well, I mean, the quick answer about TrackMeNot in particular is that there are many people who use TrackMeNot who aren't using Tor. Because it's so easy, you just, it's just like that, download and then it's functioning. Whereas with Tor, it's, it's become much easier to use, but it's more difficult. So you're saying how? I don't know, yeah. tell me, do you have ideas? <laughs> <laughs> we, <laughs> yeah, it's a big problem for we all should, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And my second say is, there is more than one partner to more than one party to get involved in this situation. And there is more than one consequences it can bring about. Like, I could say that you little tool is causing global warming. Because yeah, every single query in the Google, the Google database, they create lots of heat. Mm -hmm. And there is more than one way to solve a problem. There is more than one tool for the week. That is, well, if it was me, I would like to change your tool to use that only if I want to hide myself. Like, if I want to search something I don't like the search engine capture, I can use that, but, instead, but not a Firefox, Firefox extension that get called every time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, I mean, that's really the heart of that waste versus use case, because if you were using power, I mean, this if you were using power, someone is going to judge whether your power use is a use of power or a waste of power. And that, that's, a, that's a political question. That's a very important political question. That, that's the, I mean, I, I don't have more to say. What I have to say is simply that we have to grapple with that question of what constitutes use. A car that that uses 20 miles per gallon and a car that uses 50 miles per gallon, there are many people who are still driving cars. M most people don't complain about Tor being a waste of bandwidth. And Tor, of course, is an enormous waste of bandwidth, right? Well, it's not a waste. It's so, uh, I, I, I'm sorry, I'm using, I'm using that in quotes, right? Yeah, but, yeah. But the, the point sorry, is we I basically say, you know, the ends are we're trying to protect vulnerable people. The means of let's create functionally nine requests for every request if you're using three-hop Tor you know, on the one hand, Thanks. is it wasteful? You know, the flip side is we actually seem to feel much of the time like actually that's a very reasonable price for that particular scenario. I, I, I think we're, 
for me, you, you did a wonderful job of sort of explaining this, was turning this into threat models and essentially mm-hmm. saying, who's the attacker and therefore sort of what's the combination of ends and means that makes sense there? You are at the moment placing quite a heavy weight in, in, in track me not on the sanctity of your search history. Mm-hmm. Maybe perfectly appropriate, political, political decision. Probably a very similar equation around, um, uh, around the ad product as well. Yeah, and my final comment is, do you remember the catastrophe of internet happened at the early of this century? The many of the company went down because there was no faith or no financial income to them. And many of the young bloggers, the individual bloggers, will be forced to close their blogs and be muted, loss of voice because they can't get, gain their interest from the ads company. Uh, I think Ethan just mentioned this. Should we go to Tarleton? Helen, I'm troubled. Okay. I've, spent, I've spent many years associating with you, and I find out you're a terrorist and you're promoting global warming. I don't know. Um, I, I love thinking about this stuff. I, I find it really fascinating. I want to pick up the conversation that was happening with Ethan's suggestion that this feels like a fundamental um, 20th century advertising model question because part of the deal is somebody says, I think I can make a financial transaction with you, the advertiser, based on predictable behavior of people and they're giving something for free and they're going to do something and that would be good for you. And, and it's interesting because I don't know that the third party, the viewer, was it's, they're not in a contract, whether there's an implied contract. Right? And so, you know, this was true when, you know, the, t- the ad would come on TV and someone would get up and make a sandwich and there was sort of like, there's no, there's not a clear social norm that says I must sit there. And right. It's interesting to me to think that because then, you know, like Netflix and other devices wanted to like keep you from spinning past the ad, right? It, it wanted to establish this third side of the triangle, which was uh, instead of us betting on you doing something, right, I bet you'll sit there and watch the ad, and I bet if you liked it, it will influence your purchasing, and I bet that purchasing will benefit the advertiser. Um, we've got to sort of hold that in place, right? There's a sort of like, boy, we'd really do well if we can enforce a social norm that says you should do that, not we're betting you could do that, but we actually encourage you to do it. And I, I feel like I feel like this challenges, um, you know, if it's just a betting, if it's like, if we look out the window and watch everybody, and every time I see someone walk a straight line, I'll pay you a cent. And someone finds out about that, everyone starts weaving. It's like, well, it was a bad bet, right? And like the fact that it was then made aware of undid the very game, right? Yeah. But if I can then go outside and be like, you know, straight lines are good. You're helping the guy there who's mm-hmm. making money. Um, so this this work, there's a third side, and I feel like it's it's, uh, it's pushing on this idea that we, we made no deal, right? Yeah. Um, so I, I don't I don't know if you could then say there's a norm. Like, yes, we took the free content. Right? We, we, we got the TV show, or we got, or we got Facebook's service right? on, on trade. So I, I don't know if it's sort of like, look, there was no deal. We're, you were betting on us, and so we're allowed to misbehave in some way. If that's a way to think about it. No, I, 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 can, I just completely agree with you, despite those mean things you said about me before. <laughs> I was just telling you what I learned. So. No, I, I, there, there are other things, there were other things... Um, for instance, South by Southwest, you know, it's a voting system now. People put 
panel proposals in. And I was now suddenly in the storm of people who said, please vote that you like my panel because, you know, please support my panel. And I was thinking, you know, this is kind of weird because if I'm voting yes for everybody, then in a way I'm just destroying the system. The, the, so there are these things. And I don't know if it's the... So like like farms, by the way, is, is another form of obfuscation on Facebook where where's the contract? Sometimes you have to say the problem is the system and it's putting people in a position of doing the wrong thing. But, but it's interesting that when you, when you list some of the parallels, some of them have that kind of weak weapon of the weak style. Yeah. And some of them are um, strategic gamesmanship, right? Like the Uber example. Yeah, yeah. Where it's like, these are not, this isn't, right. uh, this isn't Malaysian. That's definitely strategy. not a weapon of the week. Yeah, yeah. And, it, yeah. and it's interesting, you know, I guess this is a classic, like, a tool of the week can also be a tool of the not week, right? Or it can be a tool of, uh, Absolutely. politics could be, a, could be a tool for just market strategy or whatever. But I, and I'm pleased you raised that because, in fact, the strong have used obfuscation as well. So it's, it's not that it's a, a weapon that can only be used, but it's to say that if you are strong, there are more effective ways to exert your will. Do we know if any of the players that you're interested in are doing this to each other? Um, are any of the search engines <laughs> Well, we know that there's... <laughs> we know that there's click there's very sophisticated click fraud operations. Yeah. So did I see Anthony? Yeah, I mean I guess I just wanted to sort of talk about I think Tarleton's quote is really good, which is like this third triangle part of the user and make a lot of assumptions about like what the ethical behavior of the user should be in this scenario and we've been kind of focused on that. But the user is not actually a person. I mean, I think we haven't spent enough time thinking about how your configuration user is somebody who is a weak party, right? And that also means weak choice options, right? Like I can't choose to purchase a search engine which will not track me. And it's not just tracking or watching ads or using my time. It's also creating an identity that can be used for banal purposes <coughs> or quite malicious purposes. And so in terms of who's defrauding who, you know, if an organization skims on its security and loses all my personal data to a third party, that's also like, that's not a meaningless incident. And But it's also like, in terms of search engines, I have perhaps choice now with Google, but I don't necessarily have choice of all websites, right? I can't pay for an option that won't track me. And so I also think that I've seen, for example, websites where it says, click on these ads if you like my content. Because mm. Oh, that's, that's really interesting. I've never seen like that level. Sense on any sort of metric, but also you can just do like micro payments, which I also kind of have problems with. But <laughs> there, are, there are, are you going to make me have to give my questions speech? I haven't done yeah. that this year. <laughs> What's the question? Oh, I didn't ever said I had a question. You called on me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I have that. Previously, but I put you in the queue. But I, I, I have an answer anyway. <laughs> Great. No, it. it I'll it, give the question speech some other time. I'd rather hear the answer. Because it may, Ethan's, lots of the questions have really been pushing me about this weapon of the week idea. It's true that you could be a very strong person, we, 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 and certainly in terms of the power that we have in relation. So actually, it's, uh, you've really helped me here, because I want to say that within a certain system, you're weak. In relation to affecting the system, you could be the President of the United States, 
strong person, but within a certain system, you could be weak because you can't influence that system to have it do what you will it to do. And, and that's really the relationship that we're trying to get at with, with calling it a weapon of the week. Maybe it's disrespectful to James C. Scott. I, 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 I wasn't know. I wasn't actually no, trying no, to get no, I mean it. It's yeah. actually more a question of, of what are the different channels towards change. But I'm going to follow up with you. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you mentioned the issues of the one, uh, the questions were directed at the Edpark issue and the other one was basically the fraud in the Yeah. Uh, I don't I have an issue uh, with the Edpark question. I can made by convincing authorities for that. But I do have a little bit of an issue with the efficacy. Yeah. Uh, efficacy in, with relation to obfuscation, biases, and fiction. Is basically, we are uh, in a very of hyper identity. So in the latest system and technology, uh, coming from my background in mathematics, obfuscation is not really considered a very effective strategy. And even the examples that you mentioned could uh, be fake circuits, a computer, uh, including uh, false coding, uh, or radar uh, avoidance systems. Those, those are weak strategies, and they are effective only short term. Mm. And, and encryption, like start in terms of uh, earthquakes, are much more effective. They might be more expensive or money, that's expensive, but they are more effective. Yeah. Uh, how you how you evaluate yeah. in many yeah. cases that the obfuscation yeah. actually is the weapon of the yeah. Because, exactly, it's not yeah. always the weapon of the week. And also, given that you need to obfuscate, you need to put out a jump, right. this actually works better from the position of the strong uh, against the league, because the league does not have technical means to distinguish the weak information from the fake information. Right. But the other way around, right. there are statistical methods which can actually uh, provide a way of counterattacking the approach. Right. Right. I, I, I mean, I, I kind of agree with a lot of what you've said, but um, the argument we want to make is that, first of all, it, 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 we have to look at it case by case. In many instances, we have to be providing the information. So with in, the <laughs> typical encryption model is that you have these two willing, you know, Adi, what's it, Alice and Bob, and then you have Eve, and we have... And that's the threat model. But what if it's Alice and then Bob is the one who's your adversary? And, and Bob has to have the information that you're getting, that you're providing in order for whatever it is. Like the search engine has to get your search. They have to know what you searched. So there's certain circumstances that where there's a, an information exchange where encryption isn't going to be a solution to that question. And possibly obfuscation is going to be a solution to that problem. There's certain cases in which you don't have the capability of encrypting, but you know how to obfuscate, and all you need is that short-term ability, etc. So I would love to be... This is what I, I, would, I want to be spending my time on, is really to abstract from some of these scenarios this threat model and say, in this threat model, cryptography has to be the way to go if you want something that really works. In this one, it's too difficult, it requires blah, 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 and this is good enough, not perfect. This one, you can't do with cryptography, 
you can do with obfuscation. This we haven't done. This we need to do. Yeah. I don't know that I'm going to get everybody. Um, that person that has had a hand time. up for so long. We're, 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 uh, Sean? Uh, in, oh no, okay, Sean and then, and then yeah. And, and then I don't mind taking a lot of questions and not answering in between. Uh, sure, do we want to take a round of questions? Yeah, yeah, that would be then, good. And then we'll let you sort of sum up and then we're going to put you in a cab. So yeah. let's go Sean, let's go there, we'll go there, and then we'll go with Jim. Um, yeah, just bouncing off like, I'm just wondering what possible responses to, you know, kind of industry responses or responses by content providers to something like ad nauseum. Like, are there ways of, that they could just, you know, have better tools for filtering out that noise, like just eliminating the clicks from every IP address that clicks on every ad on the site? Or, you know, if, if not, like, does it just have sort of this inflationary effect on the value of a click? And if they just kind of, like, figure out you know, how many people are using this tool and over time just like adjust the sort of like economics of ad delivery over time and then just kind of negate the, the, the effects of the tool. So I, I have a question just about the tyranny of the obfuscation potential, right? So getting, if, if the idea is that we don't have any control or, or visibility into how these systems work and then we intervene in the systems we still don't get to see what the effects might be of intervening systems. And so I'm curious about what the potential harms are. Obviously, advertising, you're going to see new ads and different ads based on your previous activity with ad nauseum. But if it's going to data brokers that lead to uh, you know, predatory loan targeting, where are the effects in the larger ecosystem? So Sarah, uh, Sean's got industry response. Sarah's got all sorts of built-on effects. Yes. So my question was uh, about control. So I think you made the assumption that uh, the, the local client is in the hands of the user and outside of the system that you sort of, uh, don't have control over. Uh, but uh, I think that we know by now that the, the actual laptop is also in control of someone else. So have you done any considerations as to whether this tool, if not being in control of the user, is actually creating more harm than good? Are we, I mean, we want to be the Craigslist lover, but are we maybe in fact the extermination guy that just shows up and not doesn't want to. Or are we maybe even the bank at some point for the other ones getting over? I, I would want to respond after a, a question posed quite that well, but I'm going to hand over to Jim and let, let him top that one. I just had a, I, I think it's probably related to these others. I, I'm just um, interested in the legal, I mean, you're at, a, you're at a law school, and so you must have discussed some of these issues, but when you degrade the value of a commodity that is owned by somebody else, uh, what are the legal implications of that, and how long before the legal uh, implications get challenged in court, and something like this actually gets uh, challenged as a question of uh, just degrading of uh, property and ownership of uh, commodities. So, And uh, related to that is also the question of there are certain types of data collection by government and so forth that are socially valuable and 
are sanctioned by official channels and so forth, how do we distinguish between, say, Google and, uh, I don't know, the social security system or something? Um, I missed that last bit. What did you say? What was the last question? Uh, I, I'm just talking about if you're using obfuscation mm -hmm. for many, many different situations. Mm -hmm. So if you're just loading up uh, an instrument and it's functioning, how, do, how does that instrument distinguish between yeah. legitimate uh, yeah. uh, data collection? Whether or not it's situation data collection that you wish to resist. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, maybe I'll start like in a backward Please, order, yeah. and I'll skip that one. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't. Uh, I, I could. I, I don't think that a, that these folks would. They they could. They could. I think Ethan made the best argument uh, from the from the ad industry, and although it does have the potential to create, maybe. Have make a little dent. Um, <clears throat> it's like giving a bad review to a movie or something. It, it could really diminish the value of that product, but there's certain ways in which it's not my responsibility to sustain the value of your property. I don't know. That's just my gut reaction. And then the other question about the legitimate targets or not, that's to the heart of the ethical question. You can only justify it if the, the adversary you've targeted is a legitimate target of the obfuscation. And um, I mean, I think that some of where government has been good, like the IRS, in protecting information that it holds about us, uh, we, it's good, it's great. We have a good relationship. They understand why it's really useful to maintain confidentiality. Some government entities don't, and so they deserve to be targeted. Um, I mean, I, I don't know if you really ex expected a response. I think what you're saying about we feel in control of the local client, but actually we're very far from it. Um, help join the join the fight. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Teach yeah, us. I was just wondering yeah. if you have been considering these things and yeah. in that case. No, no. I have to say we've been quite naive in that. We've, we've said my browser, me, you know, all of that. But of course, what's fascinating about this is that one of the best reasons <clears throat> to start a botnet is to commit click fraud on a mass scale. And so oh, it does yeah. raise this very yeah. interesting question yeah. of, again, my, my, you know, I'm putting words in your mouth, no. but are there senses in which your system compromised actually becomes a super tool oh. for someone trying to benefit themselves through actual organized click fraud. I mean, the, the thing is, I, also, I don't have such a firm idea of my property, my computer, my property. Not really. You know, anything that's even your property, a piece of land, as long as it's within a communal space, has to live within it according to certain rules. And if I'm, my computer is hooked up to the network, I know that there are ways in which it's not completely under my control, and it's just a question of in ways that are relevant to this particular threat model that we've created. So, no, I think it's a, I, I value the point. I'm, I'm just not in the position to really address it deeply enough. Um, I think that actually the first two points are somewhat related in that, well, the one question, I don't, I don't know, um, 
if you were asking, is it possible to see the consequences of obfuscation, we've tr that's some of the testing that we've tried to do. So before Google uh, got in, you know, um, moved to its consolidated privacy policy, only Yahoo was admitting that it was using searches to influence your interest profile. And so we set up some test computers where we just ran TrackMeNot on a clean profile. And we could at least see that TrackMeNot was having an effect on the interest profile. And, and maybe if we did the same thing for the Google interest profile, now that we know that Google is integrating searches into the profile, we might see the same results. And the thing about the thing that um, I have to say is what we never know, because this is completely in a black box, is how the interest profile actually affects how you treat it, because this is, which nobody asks, and we are led to believe that the interest profile actually does play a role, which I've, I don't know that we have proof of that. And then the question of the industry um, responses, Um, I wrote down industry responses, e.g. defeating, defeating. How, how might the industry <laughs> fight against your oh, tool? Oh, yeah. Will it simply devalue right. a click in the system, yeah, or will right, they start right. blocking on a massive basis anyone who clicks every ad on the page? Right, right. So there's certain defeat that we love. So they may say, yeah, look at that person. She's clicking all the ads. We're just not going to send her ads anymore. <laughs> So that's one response. But there are worse responses that Ethan has advised me of. Um, they, there may be a movement to different kinds of models which recognize that maybe click is not so reliable anymore. And Yeah, I mean, industry, I would, I would feel it a great victory if industry recognized the impact, <laughs> to be honest, you know, getting to your point over here and, and try to um, react. But... If that happens, the success will have been that enough people have communicated that they're fed up. Because if we're still so small that the industry isn't responding, then that's maybe a problem. So at this point, we have to return Helen to her own students, uh, tragically. If we could thank her with a round of applause.